Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hey, what's going on, everybody? I hope y'all having a wonderful day out there. I hope everything's going good. And today we are picking up where we left off on last episode. And by the way, if you are new to this podcast, we are a podcast directed towards equipping Christians with the tools they need for the world today and just lifting up, edifying, growing in grace and knowledge, the body of Christ, that is the church. And uh, honestly, we're not just for new Christians. We are for seasoned Christians. If you want to learn more, we go in depth. We don't just do milk. We do meat. And if you are a non-Christian, this might be a great opportunity for you to sit back and learn what Christianity is all about, whether you are sitting back trying to disprove it, which is honestly impossible, and or two, maybe you're curious and you're learning and you want to know a little bit more about what this whole Jesus business is. Well, as I said before, today's episode is kind of a continuation. Not really. They could be separate episodes, but kind of a continuation from last one. Last episode, if you remember, we talked about what hmm, when a Christian fails temptation, what should that response be? And this episode is going to more so dwell on the struggle with sin. And honestly, I call this episode more so struggling with sin or living in sin. Now, as today's message, I want to focus on that exact topic because I feel like it's so often ignored. You know, when I've, I've been in the military for 16 years now and active duty, so I travel all over the place. I go from duty station to duty station, and I, and I got to experience all these different churches when I try to find a new church for whenever I'm going to be there, for, you know, for the next three years or however long it is. And I have heard, I've had the opportunity to hear so many wonderful sermons, sermons on why we shouldn't sin, the importance of fleeing from sin. But today, and really in the next, these last two messages, this being the last one, I really wanted to focus on the war between the flesh and spirit. That being that our spirit has been made alive in Jesus Christ and what our Christian response should be when we fail that battle in sin. I don't think people talk about it enough. What should the Christian response be to sin? We talked about last time the Christian response in failing temptation. It's going to be very similar, the Christian response to sin, but we're going to go more into the sin aspect of it today. Now, we as Christians, we know that the war the war against sin has already been won. Christ already conquered that on the day uh, uh, where he died for our sins. And on that day, when we die and we stand before God, we will be innocent because of Christ dying for our sins, dying for those who believe in him. But while we are still on this earth, the battle is going to be raging on. Even though we already won the war, there's still remnant battles being fought all the time. And honestly, it is my opinion that as long as we are in this fleshly body, that that battle is going to keep raging until God brings us to absolute glory. Now, before we jump into our main text, I would like to point out a few key observations that the Bible makes when it comes to sin. And this is going to be good to keep in mind as we go along. Number one, sin is any transgression against the law of God. Okay, 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The point is clear here. Sin is any type of transgression 
against God's law. And I want you to notice the word practice there. That's a key word in there, practice. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning. Not trips, follows, uh, but, you know, and they stumble, um, but practice, practicing. You know, like you practice football, you practice sport, makes a practice of sinning. Point number two, sin is of the devil. 1 John 3, 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil, there's that word practice again, by the way, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Point number three, every person is born into sin. Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even David in Psalms 51 says that he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin his mother conceived him. That's the chapter we went over last episode. We are sinners who are born into sin. When two sinners come together and make a baby, they make a little baby sinner. <laughs> no, all joking aside. Um, but when you have two sinners that come together, they're going to create something that is going to have sin in it. It's like drilled into the DNA. It's going to be present in that child. Now, this is just a side note on this. I don't want to get too far off in a tangent. I do believe that you can make an outstanding case using the Bible that unborn and the children, the little children born, uh, go and they die a premature death. They will go to heaven and be with God. Now, obviously, I don't know what that age is, what that age of accountability is. I think that's only known to God. Um, I don't think there is a specific age personally for each person. Maybe there is, who knows, but I don't think so. I think it's when you eventually come to the ability where God sees that you have the ability to acknowledge God as God. But before that time, um, I do believe you go to heaven. I mean, the Bible, I can, I can go on and on about it. You know, the Bible talks how there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, language, everything in the kingdom of heaven. How else can that be? Just think about all the abortions that go on all the time. And you can make a case for what happened to David and what God said to him about his son. Uh, we, we can go on and on about that, and that's honest, honestly a whole nother episode, but just get the picture here. Every person is born into sin. Point number four, Christ's blood is what redeems us and cleanses us from that sin. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So just in quick review, point number one, sin is any transgression against the law of God. Number two, sin is of the devil. Number three, every person is born into sin and has sinned. And number four, Christ's blood is what redeems us and cleanses us from sin. So we see here that sin is inevitable in our lives. It's a fact. We as Christians know that the one and only way out is to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only way to escape the judgment that comes from sinning. But what happens after we become a Christian? What are we to do with sin now? Now that our spirit has been changed and we are now accounted righteous before God. Does sin simply disappear and will never sin again? Well, honestly, if we're being true to ourselves, we know that it's not true. I mean, why else would the Bible continue to talk about sin all over the place in the context, especially of those who believe? 
Now, I understand some of our Methodist, uh, Pentecostal, and Charismatic friends out there do believe that it is possible to attain, they call it the second work of grace, and this was something uh, created by John Wesley uh, from the guy who started the Methodist Church. If you go back to our series on denominations, uh, you would hear a little bit more about that. But he, st- he, st- he made this statement, calling it the second work of grace, to where through sanctification, through prayer time, through studying and just growing in grace and knowledge of the word, that a Christian could reach a state where they are in the flesh still, still living in this world, but they have no guilt of sin and they will not sin and their thoughts are free from sin. Now, I personally do not believe that. I do not believe that that is biblical. I don't think that's stated anywhere in the Bible. Uh, And it would be even a stretch to try to piece things together and try to draw inferences off of it. But uh, some people do hold true and believe that. Personally, me, I do not. Uh, and, and I've never actually even met. I have plenty of friends who are, are Methodist and Pentecostal and charismatic, and, and I have never met one that has admitted that they made it to this second work of grace or this sinless perfection. Sinless perfection is actually a whole nother term that somebody somebody took and twisted what John Wesley said and said pretty much it from the time that you're a Christian, it is possible for you to be in sinless perfection in this world without any of the sanctification. And that's that's even that's an absolute garbage. Like, you know, you might even have me, you know, where Wesley had it. He said that it had to come through sanctification. It had to come through studying and growing in grace and knowledge and prayer time. But this new doctrine of sinless perfection talks about how oh, it can be an instantaneous thing. I completely reject that. Uh, wholeheartedly. And I'm not trying to offend anybody here, but I just don't see a biblical basis for it. And if you do, by all means, go ahead, hit me up on Facebook, hit me up on Twitter, let me know, bring the verses with you, and I'll go over and we'll talk about it. Shoot, we can make a whole episode of it. But anyways, digressing on, the question that I'm posing here, what should the Christian do with sin? Thankfully, as all things as we do on this show, this topic is already covered in the Bible and especially thankful to the uh, uh, Apostle Paul because he wrote on this. Now, as we're going through, I want you to ask yourselves this question as we're going through this. Just keep it in the back of your head. What is the difference between struggling with sin and living with sin? Now, the main text that I'm going to be reading from can be found in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. If you've got your Bible available with you, I highly encourage you, please read with me. Uh, always double check what I'm telling you. If you're driving in your car or you can't get your Bible, don't do anything unsafe. Just mark it down, write it back, read it later on. But this is Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. And before we actually start reading it, I do want to give you a little context to this passage. Paul, in the earlier verses of this chapter, was just talking about how the law shows how sinful we truly are. And also that the law itself is not bad. The Bible shows us that the law was needed to point out how desperately far away from God we are. And that the law ultimately points us to Christ. We know that our actions, nobody gets justified through the law. Paul went over that time and time again throughout multiple books of the Bible. Nobody is justified by the law because nobody can keep that law. The only one who was able to keep it was Christ Jesus. 
We're going to go ahead and pick up on verse 13, where Paul starts explaining about the war between our flesh and our spirit. And this can be kind of a tongue twister, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading. Sorry, KJV users out there. I mean, I hopefully you could, you could understand it, but it does go back and forth. It can almost be a little bit of a tongue twister. I'm going to be specifically reading out of the NASB for this. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order, he's talking about the law there, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So in other words, he's saying that the commandment was pointing out sin, showing you what sin was, and it became sinful beyond measure. It wasn't a bad thing. It was actually good because it pointed it out. For we know in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I... I, he's talking about himself here, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. And this is key here. This is big. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, in my body. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Mm, ain't that true? Verse 22 now. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now, what exactly is Apostle Paul trying to say here? And I think if you were following along pretty well, that you have a pretty good understanding. And honestly, if anything... Some of you might just be saying, well, in English, this, this passage is a real tongue twister, Tim. I might need you to read that again. Uh, please, that's why, by all means, read along. Read along, write it down, remember it, so you can go read it yourself. Some people have actually argued here that Paul is referring to non-Christians in this passage. Some others say that Paul is referring to a carnal Christian. Others have said that Paul is referring to a baby or a new Christian, like a baby Christian. And I'm honestly, I don't know where they get those ideas from because this passage, honestly, it makes it clear that Apostle Paul is illustrating one of the most mature Christians, one of the most mature stages even that a Christian would be in. And not only that, he's referring to himself. Now, a few key things that I would like you to point out would be his consistent use of the word I. He's talking about I, I, me, me, me. He's not talking facetiously. He's saying I, as in himself. 
And if you notice, he's actually writing this in the present tense rather than a past tense style. So he's talking about himself right there and then when he wrote Romans, which is one of his last books. Not the last one, but one of them towards the end of his lifetime. Now, you might say, well, Tim, how could this be? I mean, this is Apostle Paul you're talking about here, man. He wrote so many letters and he was so wise in the Lord. How could he be in this much despair over sin? And honestly, the answer is simple. Because sin is something the Christian sadly will inevitably deal with throughout their lives. Not only that, but because brokenness is not just a appropriate response to sin, it should be our only response for when we sin. Now, I know this sounds real controversial, but please listen. Listen to this. Listen to the words that Paul pens in verse 24. He says, O wretched man that I am. Paul is broken over his sins. And just a side note, there is a difference between being broken over your sins and a type of guilt over your sins. I know that sounds very, very similar, but trust me, there's a difference. I'll give you an example. Paul, right here, he's being broken over his sins. But the guilt type that I'm referring to is more so akin to someone like Judas. If you have read through the Gospels, you know about Judas. Judas betrayed Christ. And what did he do after he betrayed Christ? He got money for it. He felt so guilty about it that he tried to give the money back and he eventually ended up hanging himself. Well, some might try to go on and say, and some actually have tried to go on and say, well, this, this kind of proves that uh, Judas repented of his sins. I don't know how they can say that because we know the Bible, what the Bible says about it is that it would be better that he had never been born. And he even goes on to say that he went to his own place after he died. I, that sounds scary. Definitely doesn't sound like he went to heaven. I mean, when Jesus is saying it is better that he had never been born uh, it doesn't sound like he was saved for redemption there. So I did. I just wanted to point that out so you could see the difference between a Christian when they are broken over their sin and a non-Christian when they feel guilt for something that they did that was wrong. Now, I want to point out another person who actually felt broken over their sins in a Christian context. And we talked about it a little bit last episode, actually a lot of it last episode, but I want to refer back to King David. And this time we're going to go to Psalms 32. And this is one of those uh, seven penitential psalms that I talked about earlier, how David wrote seven psalms of his sins that he did with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah and had a baby uh, conceived from this adulterous relationship. This is one of those seven. We went over Psalm 51 last time. Here's Psalm 32. Actually, we're just going to go over two verses from it just to keep it uh, for the purposes of what we're doing, verses 3 through 4. But I highly suggest you go through and read all of that chapter because it has so much inside of it, not only just about the guilt and the brokenness, but about our response to it. Verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. Man, that sounds horrible, right? Have you ever felt that way? What I'm trying to say here is that as we grow 
in spiritual maturity, grace, and knowledge, we begin to understand more and more how sin is an affront to God. And although we have obtained freedom from the penalty of sin through the grace of God and know that we are forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord on the cross, who is holy forever, amen, we still feel disgusted with ourselves when we sin against our holy God. Now, a key point that I want you to know is that we do not live in that sin. We do not dwell in that sin in after we've done it, you know, that place of brokenness that we have. We don't stay in that brokenness. We don't dwell inside that brokenness, in, in that depression, in our own remorse. But rather, we, one, recognize it for what it is. Two, remember that feeling of guilt. And three, know we are forgiven through the blood of Christ Jesus and turn away and repent from that sin. Now, repentance does not mean we will never do that sin again. Uh, hopefully, it can mean that. I hope it means that we'll never do that sin again. But it doesn't absolutely mean that. And it doesn't also just mean saying, oh, I'm sorry. What repentance means is to turn from it and to not take any pleasure in it. The Hebrew word actually used for repentance means to turn around, like literally go the other way. Or in the Greek, it means to change your mind, change your way of thinking. At one point, you thought this sin was so awesome and so cool, even if it was something you kept hidden. You didn't feel bad about it. You wanted to go and do it. You chased after it. But when you repent of that sin, you no longer desire to do that sin. You no longer want to do it. You might get caught up in a momentary time where you end up falling to that sin, but it doesn't change the fact that you are disgusted by that sin. You don't want to do that sin. You think that sin is horrible. Am I testifying with anybody here today? Now, a key I want you to take away from this, and this is a quote that a pastor once said to his congregation. And I really wish I, I, I knew who said this. I heard it in a sermon while I was passing one time and I could not find it again. But he said, as a Christian, we may be done with sin, but sin is not done with us. Paul made that point very clear to us through the chapter we just read in Romans 7. Now, some of you might be like turning your head sideways and being like, okay, so when is he going to... Like he's talking awful lot about how sinning is normal for us. And no, I'm not saying that sinning is normal for us. I do not want that to get out there. Sin is not normal for a Christian. Sin should be the opposite thing we do. We need to be careful of this. Because those who are weak in faith or those who are not truly a Christian, a false convert... They will try to pervert the words that I'm saying here or the words of Apostle Paul in Romans 7 and say, well, we're forgiven. And since we're always going to keep on sinning, what's the point? What's the point in trying to even stop? Might as well just live in it. Well, if that's the conclusion that you're coming out of, then you've ignored everything that we've covered up so far. And you honestly have not read your Bible. Because Paul, especially in the book of Romans, just read from Romans 1 all the way through. Romans is an amazing book. He covers that. They were asking, oh, should we sin more so that grace may keep abounding? No, God forbid, Paul said. Just because you have grace, just because you are given, does not give you 
a blank check to sin. And I want to point out one specific part in Romans 6 where Paul talks about that. We already learned, like I said, in Romans 7, our flesh and our spirit, they are at war with each other. You're not at war with each other if your flesh and your spirit want to do the exact same thing. (laughs) Our spirit wants to please God while our flesh wants the pleasures of this world. So what do we do? We have been given, as Christians, a key weapon in this war, and that is the Holy Spirit itself. On our own, we are going to lose time and time and time again. And I thank God that it is the Holy Spirit that keeps me in righteousness. Because if it was something for me, if I could actually lose my salvation based on my sin, which I believe we cannot lose your salvation if you truly are a Christian, I would lose my salvation over and over and over again. I thank God for the Holy Spirit who saves us and keeps us from that. The Holy Spirit renews us, makes us a new creation in Christ, and enables us to train our bodies to do the works of God rather than the works of the flesh. And if you did not know, those works of God that we do, that's not of ourselves. I want to make that clear. That's that's because of God. But before I get sidetracked on that, let's go back to Romans 6, like I was saying. Specifically, Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. Paul wrote here, Therefore I do not let, or therefore do not, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members, that's your flesh, your body, your, your, your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as an instrument of righteousness to God. For sin shall have no dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. In other words, he's saying that yes, us as Christians have a changed spirit. And yes, us as Christians, we may have flesh, but we should not dwell in that flesh. We should not be submitting ourselves to our flesh, but instead submitting ourselves to God and his righteousness. And therefore, through the Holy Spirit, make our members instruments for righteousness. Train our flesh, train our bodies, using our mind, using our spirit, using what God gave us, the knowledge in the Bible. Sin should have no dominion over us. Yes, we fail at times, but it doesn't have control over us. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And once again, we're able to overcome that because of the Holy Spirit. And it enables us to do the works of God. And once again, I'm, you know, I'm about to go off on a small tangent here. But this is so important for us to understand when it comes to the works that we do in God's name through the Holy Spirit. The works of God that we do are not of ourselves, but are of God. When we train our body to become instruments of righteousness, that's not because you're so amazing and you have such a strong work ethic. It's because of God and the change that he created in your life. 
the reason I'm driving this point home so much is because some people will get so bogged down in church legalism and focusing everything uh, on, on everything that they should do. You know, oh, I need to wear this tie. I got to dress this specific way. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to tie this much money. Oh, I got to do this and I got to do that. And it's just, it takes all that away. And people start relying on that, like they're working for their salvation. Or even worse, you have entire denominations out there, such as the Catholics, who focus on a works-based salvation doctrine. It's works plus faith. That's what they say. When we know that that's not the case, just go back to Romans 1. The just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall live by works in faith, but the just shall live by faith, through faith, through faith. That's how we are saved. That's how we are justified. Not by works. And the works that we do are not of ourselves. That's of God. And you're like, Tim, you said this like 20 times again. Yes, I did. But it's important because people keep messing this point up. And just to drive that point home one last time, let's go ahead and look at one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. But not just those verses. The one that so often gets left out for some reason is verse 10. Let's read the whole thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, underline that, so that no one may boast. And here's the key, verse 10. For we, the Christians, are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Read that verse 10 with me one more time. For we are his workmanship, us Christians created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we can't even, now I'm breaking away from the verse, so we can't even boast about the good works that we do because it's God who laid all of them out for us before the even beginnings of time. We can't boast in something that God laid out for us. Now, a key word I do want you to see here is the word should, that we should walk in them. Because God, honestly, he's not going to turn us into a bunch of robots. I know a lot of people, uh, you know, I believe in the doctrines of grace, um, and and that includes uh, God's unconditional election, or a lot of people like to refer to that as predestination. They'll say, well, Tim, I mean, according to predestination, it sounds like God turns us into robots. No, no, it it doesn't. You don't have a good understanding of it then if you think that. We still are of ourselves, but God is the one who came into our lives and convinced us so amazingly and opened our eyes to the truth. There's no way that we could have said no. It was impossible. And through that, God laid out these good works for us to walk in. But like I was saying on the point, God didn't turn us into a robot. Our faith is a gift of God, just as we read. But we are the ones who need to act on that faith that we have been gifted. God won't force that action on us. Now, we got to be careful with this because this gets into some muddy territory. But we have to put in the study time. 
the prayer time, and the fellowship time in order for God to use us in those works that he laid out beforehand. And once again, I know I'm going to sound like a round robin, but that study time, prayer time, and the fellowship time that we're doing, we're not doing it because we're working towards it. We're doing it because we genuinely want to because God saved us and God changed us into a new person, a new creation. Otherwise, we would never want to do that stuff in the first place. So you can't brag in that study time, prayer time, and fellowship time because it's something that God enabled you to do in your life. Hopefully, you're seeing the connection here now. I know it can get into a big, muddy mess, like I said, uh, but this is so worth studying. I, I honestly think of us as a knife that's still just a hunk of metal. And, and, and then God, as he grows us through the reading of his word, boom, pounds out the impurities. And then through pair time, bam, he starts giving us shape and form. And then bam, through the fellowship with other believers, God is sharpening those edges and turning us into a tool that he can use a knife that he can use to cut with, cut to the heart of the matter. Once again, it's not us doing it. It's God who enabled us. So brothers and sisters out there, the entire point of this message is this, and I know that was a long tangent, but it was an important one. If you are struggling in your sin and you're feeling broken in that sin, then one, I'd encourage you to listen to that struggle that you're in so that way you can get out of it and you don't have to do it again. Stop it. But not only that, rejoice over the fact that you feel broken and disgusted by that sin because through that brokenness, through the reading of the word, through the prayer time, through the fellowship time with other believers, I truly believe that God is doing a work in you that will come and continue to change and shape you for all eternity in this lifetime. That is sanctification. That brokenness and that shame, that is the Holy Spirit convicting you to lay that sin aside and look to Christ, who, as it says in Hebrews, is the author and the underline this perfecter of our faith. Christ is not just the author of our faith, but he is the perfecter of our faith through that sanctification. But I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the negative side a little bit. If you're sinning, but you don't feel anything over it, and you continue to do it over and over and over again without a second thought, or even worse, you do it knowing that you're going to be forgiven, saying, oh, God's going to forgive me anyways. Then I want you to do something that Paul mentions in his second letter to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5-6. through 6. The Apostle Paul writes, examine yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize about this about yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you do fail to meet the test. And I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. Now, there's a word in there, fail, failed the test, or another translation, say disqualified, meaning that you are disqualified. 
That means that you are not saved. You are not Christians. The Greek word here, the root word here, is the word autokimos. And that word is used in a negative connotation. It means unapproved, rejected, worthless, or reprobate. That same Greek word is used in Romans 128 when it talks about God, when he abandons one to the lust of their own desires and decides to give them over to a reprobate mind for not acknowledging that God is God. So how do we examine ourselves, Tim? You might be asking yourselves that. How do we do this? How do we examine ourselves? I believe the words of Jesus Christ are an efficient answer to this. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, and, and mind you, in context, he was warning us about false teachers here, but you can take something key away from this, a way that Christians should be able to tell apart other Christians. He said, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. And obviously, he's not talking about real fruits there. Uh, he's talking about our works in Christ. He's talking about the fruits of the Spirit, really, too. You will know them by their fruits, their actions, what they do, how they respond to situations. In other words, this is what I'm trying to say. If you really want to examine yourself, this is, this is a way to do it. Look at yourself right now in the present time and compare that back to when you decided to actually follow Christ. Do you see a difference in your life? Or are you still doing the same things you were from your past? You should see a visible change in everything that is going on in your life. From the time that you truly decided to follow Christ, do you still lust after the same things? Do you still want to do the same things that you want to do? Do you still long after the same sins you were doing beforehand? If no, then I'd say you do pass the test and you are truly saved. Obviously, that's something only God knows, but that's a very good indication to me. But if you still long for those things, like we said, and brothers and sisters, you, you are failing the test. And I can't even call you brother and sister. If you're a Christian, then I pray that this message, it helps you in your everyday walk, in growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do end up examining yourself, and you come to see that you have not changed since that day that you thought you accepted Christ. And I, and I know it might not be instant. Maybe this will happen a few days from now or a year from now. Or maybe it is happening right now to you. And you're looking back and you don't see that change. I don't want to leave you in despair. Because as long as your heart is still beating... And as long as there is breath inside your lungs, you can still confess that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, just as it says in Romans 10, 9 through 10. And you will be saved unto righteousness and have that same hope that we as Christians have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know this was a long episode, but it was an important one. I want to leave you with this passage. 
And I really do hope and pray that whether you are saved or unsaved, that God speaks to you through this passage in a way that only you can truly understand. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That was us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation. What a beautiful beautiful word that is. I thank God that I am reconciled through Christ Jesus because I couldn't do it myself. And I thank God for the Holy Spirit that he has given me to flee from those sins of my past. And I thank God for the Holy Spirit that when I do mess up, that I feel like garbage. So that way I can go back and never do that sin again. Because I remember that pain. I remember how horrible it felt to sin against our holy and mighty God. We're going to go ahead and end this on a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that this message, everything I said here was correct, Lord. And if not, I pray that you would just identify that so I can correct it. Just blot it out from people's memories, Lord. Lord, thank you for your saving grace and thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray, your will alone. Amen.